we'll have another look at concentration and wisdom as it applies to our meditation practice. In Pali, the two are Samatha and Vipassana. Vipassana means insight or inside wisdom. Samatha, calm or concentration. These are the only two directions that exist in meditation. There are, as I've mentioned already, many different methods. The Buddha taught 40. There are others. But there are only two directions. Whatever method we apply, these two directions need to be included. Some methods are more conducive to calm, some are more conducive to insight, but basically all of them bring both calm and insight. Now when we watch the breath and we actually stay on the breath and don't do anything else, don't think about yesterday and don't think about tomorrow. Don't want to plan on anything or fix up anything. Actually, are completely with the breath. That's samatha. Calm. Tranquility. Which obviously only arises to a noticeable extent as soon as this calm and continuous application remains with us. However, even a little of it does bring some calm. When we label so that we know the content of the thought that brings insight. If the mind is unwilling, restless, anxious, unable to focus, which happens sometimes to people who are used to a lot of thinking or at times when a lot of distraction is happening. It's much better to focus on insight than it is to focus on calm. Calm is just not going to arise. The mind just doesn't want to stay on the breath. It does everything else except that. And then one may eventually come to the conclusion that it's hopeless, that one isn't suitable for this kind of practice, that uh, one needs to find something else, Tai Chi or whatever it may be, or that one needs to search a little further for a different method. At least what happens is that one loses self-confidence. And that's very 
damaging in all aspects of life, particularly in meditation, because we have really nothing to go by. We're being told a lot of things and we can't do them. So if I can't do that, then probably I'm not good enough or something like that. But that's a totally wrong approach. A little bit of calm brings a little bit of insight, and a little bit of insight brings a little bit of calm. So if the mind doesn't want to stay on the meditation subject, but keeps thinking and going off on tangents, we can direct it to use its thinking capacity in a profitable manner. In the first instance, by watching the impermanence of each breath. The word insight, the word vipassana, has a very distinctive meaning in the Buddha's language. <coughs> it doesn't mean a method. It means something very special. It means an insight into three characteristics that pervade the universe and thereby us too, because we are part of the universe. These three characteristics in Pali are Nietzsche Dukkha Anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and corelessness. Now that is what insight, the word insight, actually implies. And as we become aware to a deep and profound extent of any one of those three, we then know the other two also. But on the way to that, little insights arise because these are necessary as stepping stones. So in the first instance, what we can do when our mind refuses to stay put is to use one of these three characteristics as our focus of attention. The most favorable and the least arguable is impermanence. Very few people can negate it. Very few people can live it, but at least we can use it. Each breath that comes in is finished. Each breath that goes out is finished, and a new one arises. If that were not the case, we'd be dead very soon. If the breath was not changing constantly, there would be no life support. Now, the minute we experience this and not just believe it because I'm saying so or because the Buddha said so, but experience it ourselves. We gain a foothold in a different perspective. Our life, which is precious to all of us, is totally dependent upon something 
which has to change moment by moment, millisecond by millisecond. It must change, otherwise no life. Now when that experience arises simply through putting one's mind on the fact that this is so, as we're breathing in, as we're breathing out, it changes, it is impermanent, it finishes and a new one comes. When that arises as an experience, we can become aware of the fact that we have really very little solidity. We are constantly on the verge of not being here. All that would be necessary would be for the breath to stop through some outer condition which is constantly available. Just think of all the cars on the freeways. The condition of our breath to stop is always there. We are dependent upon this very fragile and transparent, untouchable wind which must change. That is what we depend on to be alive. That's not very solid, is it? On the contrary, it is so substancelessness that we can neither touch it nor can we see it except under particular conditions when it's ice cold. We can do nothing with it except hold it for a moment or expel it heavily. But otherwise we've got to let it be if we want to stay alive. It's just got to keep going. And it's got to keep changing. Now when we see ourselves as dependent upon that, the next inference can be all that I'm aware of is also changing. The thoughts which are disrupting my meditation are arising and ceasing, coming and going, changing all the time. I can't hang on to them. I can't hold on to them. I can't even remember them. They're all gone. And yet, it is my premise that they are my thoughts and I'm thinking them. They're me. This is the premise on which our life is based. And yet I can't even remember them. And yet I remember to say me or mine. There's some sort of discrepancy there, a dichotomy of thought processes which do not seem to fit together and therefore need investigation. We are accepting something because it is generally accepted. Everybody does it. Everybody thinks it. Are we really people 
that do think and say what everybody else is doing? I don't think we'd be sitting here if we were those kinds of people. Those that do say and think what everybody is doing are probably watching their television set right now. So we need to investigate very diligently what it is that makes us believe so deeply and profoundly that these thoughts are me and mine. And yet, there's nothing in them that remains. Nobody can remember what he or she was thinking about at five o'clock this afternoon, yesterday, two weeks ago, five years ago, ten years ago, ten minutes ago. What is inner thought? There's the arriving and there's the ceasing. And we can be aware of it because they keep coming, don't they? And they also keep going away. And besides labeling them, knowing their content, we now need to look at their character. This is what the Buddha suggested that we look at the characteristic of whatever we know about ourselves. Now we do know the breath and we do know our thoughts. We also know our feelings. We become aware of feelings which include emotion and sensation. Now even if we might say, all right, I'm not this body, and maybe I'm not all these thoughts that have been coming and going for such a long time, but I must be something. So I'm my feelings. I'm in touch with my feelings. So I am those feelings. Well, can anybody remember their feelings? Luckily, we can't. Because if we were to remember every feeling we've ever had, we couldn't ever have enough space in the mind to take in anything new. We've had millions or billions of them. They've all come and gone. And strangely enough, some of them were very unpleasant, either sensation or emotion. And nobody wants them, and yet they came. How come we call them mine? If they're really mine, don't we have any jurisdiction over them? If this clock is mine, I have the jurisdiction over it to either throw it away, give it away, keep it, break it. I can do with it what I like. It's mine. What about feelings? Can I actually do with them what I like? Or do they keep arriving and ceasing? Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Sensations or emotions. And sometimes they're so unpleasant that they become quite a burden. And we identify with them. All this 
can be used in the meditation as meditative practice because it brings an insight or at least the beginning of an insight into our deluded and faulty thinking which is the cause for every human problem that has ever existed or will ever exist is existing now. The delusion which is ours is the cause for every discomfort in the mind that can possibly arise. So if the mind has a resistance to the calm aspect of meditation, it's not a lost cause, nor is it a lost meditation hour. It's nothing of the sort. All we need to do is direct the mind that it uses the time profitably, that it thinks about that which can help it to gain access to a different way of understanding, to an opening which creates the loss of, eventually, the loss of that self-illusion and has, brings with it a totality feeling. So when the concentration, which is one-pointed, does not happen, please don't think that you can't meditate. That's only one direction. The other direction is insight. A person who is very analytically minded will be interested in examining the aspect of substancelessness or corelessness, which means that we investigate where does this idea of me arise from? How did we get it? Where does it sit? Which part says me? Which part screams, I am? Obviously, it's the mind that's doing it. But <coughs> on what is it basing this particular thought process? If we keep on examining all that we know about ourselves, which will give us an insight what we consist of, we won't find any part that says, this is me. And yet, we're all concerned with that. In order to gain insight, the Buddha recommended that we use the five khandhas, the five aggregates. Khandhas is Pali, skandhas is Sanskrit, aggregates is English doesn't mean anything, does it? The, the five heaps of which we consist 
which are our the parts that make us may our makeup. Now he said to investigate these five and to find out if there's anything else except those five. And then, having done so, examine whether there's anything within those five that has any aspect which is individual, which says it's mine because it can be kept. If it's mine, it has to be able to stick around, because me seems to be around all the time. We wake up in the morning, and that's me. We walk around, it's me. We eat, we drink, we sleep, it's always me. So if there's anything within those five aspects that remains, so that we can actually point to it and say, aha, I found it, that's me. Now these five, the first one is the body. Inside meditation can be directed towards the body very usefully and profitably. One of the ways of doing it is to take the body apart into its bits and pieces and see whether that's really me. way to do that is to pretend you've got a zipper in front. Unzip it and take out all the bits and pieces and lay them out in front of you. Everybody knows approximately what we consist of. We have kidneys, gallbladder, heart, lungs, blood, bones, we have bile, we have um, intestines. All right, take them all out and put them in front of you. And then have a look and see which one is me. And if you've had the misfortune to need a spare part, was it you before it got in there, or is it you now after it got in there? Obviously, none of that's me. So then, you take the whole mess and put it inside again and close the zipper up. And then it's me. How come? The Buddha compared this to a cart. In those days, they didn't have motor cars, so he was using a cart. He says, first you have wheels, spokes, um, you have sides and the uh, brake, and you have an axle, and uh, when you, all these pieces are there, and then when you put it all together, all of a sudden, it's called cart. Where's the cart? It's all consisting of those pieces, and the same, he said, applies to us. Why do we call it me all of a sudden? So we'll have a look. Another good bit about the body is, for instance, you look at your hair, for instance. That's my hair, isn't it? Now you'll snip off a bit of that and throw it in the wastebasket. 
So it used to be mine, but now it's nothing. It's just, you know, rubbish. Or the same with nails. Cut off a bit. And what is it? Just rubbish needs to be picked up and thrown away. Or teeth. This is an inside meditation. This is suitable for the mind that is not able to be one-pointed on the meditation subject to become calm and therefore can use the time, the meditation time, in order to gain some insight into the realities which are totally different from the way we usually look at things. The Buddhist Dhamma, Buddhist teaching, it's 180 degrees turned around. It's all quite different from the way we usually look at things. So having looked at this body in that manner, we can also recollect in our mind what we used to look like. Maybe we can remember some old photos that we have at home or that our mothers have at home and where our name is written underneath the photo, but otherwise unrecognizable. Now that was me. And now we look in the mirror and this is me. And what happened in between? One million different me's, all looking differently. The Buddha said that the continuity overshadows impermanence and therefore we're not aware of it. Also because it's not very comfortable. It doesn't seem safe and secure. And because of the continuity of this body continuously, first growing and then getting older, and some memory of it existing, we forget that there is actually nobody there except a phenomenon. In this case, the body, which constantly changes. It never remains the same. If it were not to constantly change, we'd be dead. Because this constant change is also the activity of our cells, which are coming together and falling apart, just like the whole universe does. We can't see it. It's too subtle for us to see it with our physical eye. But can we really trust our physical eyes? We can't even look around the next corner. We can only look straight ahead. We can't look beyond the horizon. We can't see ultraviolet light. Our physical eyes are not the best medium to find truth. Our mind can find truth. It's capable of it. And the Buddha gave every possible indication where to look for it. So one of the aspects of insight meditation is this 
investigation into the body and to see whether we can actually truthfully say that there's something in there, any part of it, that we could call me because it has remained the way it always was, has never changed. And then we have four parts of mind. And we can investigate these. I've already mentioned two. The first one, which I mentioned, our thought process. Our thought process, which we can notice very clearly in meditation. First of all, we don't actually want it. And it's arising. So how come this is me? if I don't even want it. And then, some of the thoughts which are arising are not suitable, profitable, beneficial. How come, if they were mine, I would allow such a thing to happen? the impermanence of the thought process should give us a very clear insight into the fact that thoughts are thoughts produced by mind just as breath is breath produced by body and that it's only our own idea to put the me in there. Once we take the me out of it, all sting is gone. It's not a loss to lose this illusion. It's the greatest gain there is. And the whole of the practice of this spiritual path goes in that direction. There is no other. It's the direction of trying to lose the illusion, and to see things as they really are. This is a sentence which the Buddha used very often in Pali, Yata Bhutanyana Dasana, to see things as they actually are, not as we constantly believe they are. This belief system that we adhere to is circumstantial evidence and also environmental adaptation. <coughs> if we were to take those two out of it, we could see much clearer. But we are so habitually prone to think as we've always done and as everybody else is doing around us that it's difficult to get out of that. So the first of the four aspects that we have discussed of the mind, our thought process. Then we have the feelings. Now these two are the strongest and most indicative of our existence. We actually have a complete philosophical system 
based on I think, therefore I am. The Buddha says, it's just the other way around. And the whole idea of putting an individuality into this phenomenal movement which is occurring in everyone is created out of fear and fear is a human condition. We are afraid of many things but basically it's always one the fear of annihilation that can happen through physical death that's what, why we're afraid of it but it can also happen through the emotional annihilation if our ego illusion is not supported that's why we don't like people who don't support our ego illusion and that's why it's difficult to actualize a system of understanding which goes totally against that. But what we need to do is if the mind is willing and capable is to investigate. The Buddha was constantly admonishing people not to believe anything but to investigate it for themselves. So investigate. Do it in the meditation. Investigate this body and see if there's any part in it which says, this is me, this is the center of this me being me. This is unmovable, unchangeable, remaining. Then investigate the thoughts and see whether there's anything in there which can say, it's mine. It's me, unmovable, unchanging, always remaining, a substance to which we can point. Then investigate feelings, emotions, sensations, and see if there's anything in them. And then also make the inference of the past. So many thoughts, so many feelings, Which one was me? All of them? Then each one of us is a million me's. We're already overpopulated. That would make it really terrible. The other two aspects that are part of us are our sense consciousness in our perceptions. Now the sense consciousness is seeing, hearing, tasting, touching and smelling. These five senses, which we all know, which everyone is aware, are our doorways to the world. 
and this thinking is the sixth sense. And these are the doorways to the world. So what we see, hear, taste, touch, smell, and think, that's what our world is like. Now, obviously, no two people think alike. No two people see alike or hear alike. Some people love rock and roll. Some people love Mozart and dislike rock and roll intensely. Nobody hears like the next person. That's why we have so many relationship problems. We think, each one of us, that the way we see, hear, taste, touch, smell, and think. That's the way the world is. And we can't understand why the next person has an entirely different viewpoint, opinion, and attitude. They must be wrong. They couldn't possibly be right. Because I see and I hear and I taste and I touch and I smell and I know what I'm seeing and I'm hearing. And this other person is saying something entirely different. So they must either be stupid or they want to be, uh, want to make fun of us or they want to show us up or they just want to have an argument. All right, so we have an argument. And arguments abound because nobody sees or hears alike with the next person. We all have a singular vision and we create that vision because the I, this one, E-Y-E, can only see color and shape. It cannot see clock. The mind knows it's a clock. The eye can see red and round. The mind perceives flower and says, I like it. Somebody else says, weed, I don't like it. And it's exactly the same thing. We can't see with the eye and we can't hear with the ear anything else except color and form and sound with the ear. We don't hear beautiful music. The mind hears beautiful music. The ear hears sound. And since the mind in each person has its own way of reacting, we never will agree. And if we don't finally come to that conclusion that it's quite all right, that everybody has a different opinion, and should we find one person that has the same opinion, that would be a great ego support and nothing else. Very comfortable, of course. But basically, it doesn't matter. It has no bearing on anything. Because what does it matter what we see, hear, taste, touch, or smell? Is that really all there is to the world?
Do we really believe that? And when we know from experimenting and investigating that our senses are so limited that it's only the mind which gives the explanation, we will then also be able to see that not only are our sense contacts impermanent, they have to be impermanent in order to be bearable. We can't listen to the most wonderful music more than a limited time. We can't eat and taste the most wonderful food more than a limited time. Whatever it is that we can get through our senses has to be limited. And because it's limited, it's perishable. It disappears again. So we have to get it new. And because we believe that this is the world which will bring us the happiness which we want and which we feel we are, have a right to, we have to use our time and energy to renew the sense contacts. If they were really me, why can't I keep the one I like? It's not possible. This phenomenon of a human being can only have constantly changing sense contacts. Our eyes are even made that way because they blink. We couldn't stare at something without interruption, without great pain. We can't look at anything for more than a limited time. It's very important to investigate our sense contacts, sense consciousness. Investigate it and see how it operates. And then also come to the understanding that we're wasting our time trying to find satisfaction through our sense contacts. That doesn't mean we can't have pleasant sense contacts. Of course we can. But we will never have complete satisfaction. They cannot bring what isn't their nature. Their nature is impermanence. And their nature is also not belonging to me. Because if our sense consciousness were me, then what about a person who's blind? Or a person who's deaf? or a person who has no sense of taste or smell, no me there, a person has the same sense of me as everybody else. Just I'm a blind me or I'm a deaf me. If that was really all there was to the world, it really wouldn't be worth being here, would it? It is worth being here, but for one reason only. To find out what it's all about and get out. <laughs> get out once and for all.
But we can't do that by wishing so. We can only do it through insight. The last of the four of the uh, heaps that we consist of is a perception, the namer, the one that says what it is. When the eye, this eye here, sees this and says this is a clock, that's the perception. Now, why do we have that perception? Because we all speak English and we've been around long enough to have seen clocks. But if we show this to a two-year-old, he may either, he or she, may either grab it and start biting on it, which could be either because thinks it's chocolate, looks black, could be chocolate, or because wants to try out what it tastes like, or might start throwing it around, thinking it's a ball, or might start building something with it, thinking it's a building block. Hasn't been around long enough to have seen enough clocks being told that this is a clock and should be handled a little more carefully. So that's whatever the two-year-old thinks it may be. Sees exactly the same thing as we do, color and shape. But it's a building block, it's not a clock. So the perception in our estimation... So our perception is based on our environment, on our education, and also very often on our wishes and hopes. We perceive something that we were hoping for or wishing for. And because the hope and the wish was strong, we're already perceiving it. It's not even there for somebody else. It doesn't exist. So it's a very personal way of reacting. And because this perception is constantly at work to name what is happening, and very often naming it wrongly, because of our inbuilt desires or our lack of discrimination, we then often blame ourselves for having been wrong or praise ourselves for having been right. Because it was my perception, of course. It was nothing of the sort. It was just created out of background and environment. And because of that, of course, it changes constantly too. So we can investigate. After having investigated the body, we can investigate the four parts of mind. And the way they work in their sequence, is the sense consciousness. It's our first mode of operation. We see something, we hear something, taste, touch, or smell something, or think something. It's our first touch that we do, that sense consciousness. From that arises feeling. From that comes the perception. From that comes the mental formation. 
Now, I mentioned this already to you, but you may have forgotten, that when you have a pain in the leg or anywhere else in the body, that you can become aware of this sequence. And this is the sequence that a human mind always operates under. There is nothing else. This is how we operate. Don't believe it. Investigate it. First is the touch sensation, for instance. Then comes the unpleasant feeling. Then comes the perception which says pain. And then comes the mind which says, I don't like it. I've got to get out of this. And this is not only, of course, in the meditation This is in daily living, constantly. Somebody says something, it doesn't, not very flattering to us, doesn't sound good. Unpleasant feeling arises. The perception says, such a nasty person. And the mind says, I'll never talk to him or her again. And so we've lost a friend. What happened? Sound. That's all. (laughs) That's all that happened. And if we can become aware of this sequence under which we operate, all of us, that we are subject to, and that we are constantly reacting to, because we believe that all of that is me, if we become aware of this, that it's just a phenomena which is operating, as long as we're alive, we will not be so bothered by the things we hear and see and touch and think. They're just arising and ceasing. Now this is a meditative procedure to find out about this and then use it in daily living. If, for instance... There is a thought in the meditation, or many thoughts. Investigate them. Investigate their ownership. Investigate their impermanence. Investigate how it arose. Can you go back and see where it came from? Can you watch it disappearing? Can you resist from believing it's yours? Can you objectively observe it and watch it fall apart? Same with feeling. These are ways and means of doing inside meditation. Now, there's one word of caution. If the mind has become calm, first, insight is far more profound. So we will continue to try and get the calm into the mind. But if the mind doesn't want to obey, it's quite all right, it isn't used to it, it hasn't been trained long enough, use the methods which will bring insight. 
as soon as we find ourselves a little bit distanced from all that which arises within, we become much calmer. The waves of emotion subside. Now obviously, a calm mind is a mind which can look into depth. Just like in a calm ocean, we can see below the water surface as deep as possible when it's clear. And see everything that is available to be seen. The same as with the mind. When it has lost its waves of emotion, we can see in depth. However, gaining some insight does help us to remove some of these waves. And the more we do that, the easier it is to become calm. You are the judge whether you're using one period to do any of these insight methods of meditation or watching the breath to become calm. The mind is sometimes quite happy and willing to become calm. Other times it's very resistant and it feels as if there's a short circuit. It just will not stay on the breath. All right, there are other methods to be used. Enough for this evening. You have any questions? Yeah. Where is the ego in relation to the, to the scandal? It seems to have a toehold in all of us. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. It's, um, the illusion of the ego is embedded in our ownership idea of all those five. What else? When nobody has questions, I'm always afraid that it's so totally unclear <laughs> that it hasn't sunk in. Well, that we're doing it is not an illusion. But why we're doing it is an illusion. Who are we defending? Me. Yeah. Now we have to find out who that me is. So when we go into this and find out who is this that I'm defending, we may eventually find out that it's not worth defending. Because it wasn't there in the first place. But there's nothing to believe. This is not a belief system. This is an investigation system. 
And the guidelines of the Buddha are always given so that we have a handle on what we can investigate. So it's always up to us to investigate as much of it or as little of it as we can handle at this time. So you investigate a bit of it. Okay? All of the teaching has as its um, goal and as its center the understanding of this illusion. But it's obviously the most difficult aspect of it. There are many other aspects which will help us to get in there. However, at this point, it's important to know that even when there isn't any calm in the meditation, other possibilities exist. And they, each one of them can bring with it, if practiced, some glimmer of a different reality. What we live in is a reality, but it's relative. We live in a reality which is totally relative because we are relating to our idea of it. But there is an absolute reality. And this absolute reality is certainly not monopolized by the Buddha. It has been found and understood by the mystics of all ages and of all religions. What we have in the Buddha is a particularly succinct and detailed explanation how to get there. And this is the great gift given to us, which is still available at this time. It may not or it will not always be available, but it is available at this time in the um, history of mankind. We have a particularly detailed explanation how to do it. But absolute reality is one, not distinguished through any kind of different name, spirituality, religion, or anything like that. It remains the same. It's just a matter of finding it for oneself. Please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Think of a person whom you really love deeply and let the feeling for that person arise and fill your heart. 
and then transfer that same feeling that you have for the beloved person. <coughs> transfer that to yourself. There's no difference between yourself and the beloved person. Let that same feeling fill you and surround you. Direct it towards you. Think of your beloved person again. Have the feeling arise. And then transfer the same feeling to the person sitting nearest you in this hall. Fill him or her with the same love you have for your beloved person. Think of your beloved person again. And transfer that same feeling to everyone here. No difference between one person and another. All one and the same. The fitting activity for our hearts is love. Think of your beloved person again and then transfer the same feeling to your parents. Fill them with your love. Surround them with it. Do not differentiate between one person and another.
think of your beloved person again. Let the feeling be strongly within your heart. Transfer it to all your friends. Let them all be near to your heart. Just as near as your beloved person. Think of your beloved person again. Bring up the feeling for that person. And then think of people you've met here and there. Either spoken to or just seen at work, in your travels. meeting them briefly and let them have the same feeling of love that you have for your beloved person. The heart that expands and grows is a heart that becomes pure forms a foundation for a spiritual life. Think of your beloved person again. Let the feeling arise in you. Think of anyone whom you find difficult to love for any reason whatsoever and then transfer the same feeling you have for your beloved person to that person. No difference, no discrimination, no separation. Only a loving heart.
think of your beloved person again. Let the feeling arise. And then think of all those people whose lives are far more difficult than ours. In hospital, in prison, in refugee camps. Hungry, without shelter, without friends. Love them the same way that you love your beloved person. All part of our lives. Part of the totality of this humanity. Feel the same feeling you have for your beloved person. And reach out to all these many people. Think of your beloved person again. Let the love arise, fill you. And then turn it towards yourself. No distinction. Be filled with it surrounded by it, completely drenched with it. May beings everywhere have love for each other. 